This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 26th of August, 2020. The topic was Prevention of Mental Illness in Adolescence, Challenges and Innovations. On the panel we had Dr. Elisa Werner-Seidler, Clinical Psychologist and Senior Research Fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Lindsay Brown, Research Officer for the Black Dog Institute's Future Proofing Study. And Holly Saxon, a primary school teacher and lived experience representative. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hi everyone, and welcome to tonight's Expert Insights, Prevention of Mental Illness in Adolescence, Challenges and Innovations. Before we get started, we wanted to give our acknowledgement to country, um, to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. All right. So this is tonight's Expert Insights for Health Professional podcast, um, and please do check us out on our website. So if you've missed previous podcasts, we are online. Um, you can just Google us. I found it pretty easy to find, uh, but this is also our URL. All right, so I want to introduce you to tonight's uh, panel members. I am, just let me introduce myself first. I'm Carol Newell. I'm the moderator and the clinical psychologist um, for the Expert Inside podcast. Now I'm going to go around to our different panel members. I'm going to stop share on our slideshow and get each of our panel members to introduce themselves. I might start with Holly first. Holly, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Holly. I'm the lived experience representative. I also am a primary school teacher. I've done mentoring work with the organisation RAISE and also I've volunteered with the Black Dog doing youth presentations across Sydney. Hi, Holly. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for being here with us tonight. Elisa, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So thanks, Carol. I'm Elisa Werner-Seidler. I'm a Senior Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. I've been working here for about six years now, primarily in the youth um, and adolescent mental health space, and I, I now lead the youth prevention and early intervention research stream. And Lindsay, Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your expertise in adolescent mental health? Hi, Carol. Thanks for having us uh, on here tonight. My name is Lindsay Brown. I am a high school teacher historically and also a community psychologist with a particular interest in the journey of uh, young people from childhood to adulthood. Uh, I trained as a, a, a psychologist, but I work in a range of different areas. I'm a research officer now uh, at the Black Dog, where um, I'm working on the future proofing study. Fantastic. Welcome, Lindsay. Welcome, Elisa. So let's start the question off with Holly. Holly, um, you're our lived experience um, person tonight to tell us a little bit about adolescent mental health. Now, you've had some experience struggling with mental health challenges during your adolescence. Can you tell us a little bit about the supports uh, that you got at schools? Because tonight is all about schools and mental health as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, keeping in mind, it was around 10 years ago, but there wasn't really much. I went to a public school and then I moved after my mental health illness to uh, Rudolf Steiner School, which is a bit more holistic learning. From the public school, it wasn't much really that available and there was no information giving to, given to us. I think I saw the school counsellor once or twice, but also to be fair, I wasn't going to school either because I was depressed. Mm. When I moved to the Steiner School in year 11, I got one-on-one counselling through art therapy, which was really good and that really helped but I was going to school more then. So keeping that in mind as well. Um, Mostly though, the help I got was through outside resources like counseling and psychologists and all of that. Right. So, you know, you know, I was wondering, Elisa, is it possible to prevent mental illness in adolescent? Because Holly's, it sounded like you didn't get much support within the schools. It was mostly outside of schools. Um, And I'm going to turn to Elisa now. Is it possible to actually prevent mental illness in adolescent from, from, you know, the school context? So there is evidence to suggest that you can prevent the onset of mental illness in some young people. So by some, the, the, the evidence that we have is from systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which essentially just synthesises all of the data that is available in the space. And it looks like you can prevent about 20% of cases of common mental illness, like depression and anxiety, using the psychological treatments, uh, psychological interventions that we have available. And what these tend to look like are um, either delivered to a universal group, so a whole group of young people, like a school grade, for example, or focused on young people who have elevated symptoms, but don't yet meet criteria for a disorder. So using those programs, it looks like you can prevent the onset of of mental illness in about 20% of young people. But I just want to highlight that's 80% that you actually can't. So there are, there are many young people on a trajectory towards mental illness where these programs won't work. Um, but I guess I, I have in my mind that, you know, prevention is just one piece of the puzzle. So the treatments that we have um, for different disorders have different levels of effectiveness. But for people who experience mental illness, you can actually you know, reduce the burden only by about 30% using treatments. And that's because not everyone responds. Um, Most of the treatments that are available, you have, um, you know, medications and psychological therapy. Not everyone has access to these treatments. So that's quite similar to what Holly was saying. You know, just because you you have a mental illness, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be able to access the best care. Um, You know, it it, it sounds like, you know, even just having contact with a school counsellor, that's not necessarily the same as receiving evidence-based mental health care. And so what I think is, you know, taking the prevention piece, which you know, can account for, say, an additional 20% and putting that together with treatment, that's going to be a much better approach than just focusing on treatment or just focusing on prevention. And that's still one in one in five young people who are on the way to experiencing a mental illness, who with some very basic skills and strategies delivered in like a standardised program, brief, usually six to eight sessions can be delivered by a psychologist or a school teacher or digitally can actually prevent the onset of that illness. And so the aim is really to move everyone down the continuum as opposed to, um, you know, just focusing on, on, you know, on that, on that proportion that you can prevent mental illness in. 
We've got a question from Laura here, and I actually forgot to uh, remind our audience to use the Q&A panel. So on the bottom of your screen, you should have a little Q&A, and feel free to post us any questions because we love some questions from the audience. Now, Laura has asked, please can you provide references for meta-analysis and systematic reviews for preventing mental illness? They might be a bit long for us to pop down here, but Elisa, we might, um, we might get you to send some of those references maybe to Melissa who can then yep. send them out um, to Yeah, absolutely. That, that's no problem at all. I'll be happy to share them. But, you know, uh, there's been a, a real explosion in the last decade in this area. Yep. Um, up till then, it was, you know, we didn't even know that it was possible to prevent mental illness. So there's actually been a huge amount of work that's been done over the last few years. Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to look forward. I think we'll see um, more work coming out. Most of the prevention approaches focuses on delivering something to the individual young person. But I think whole of school approaches, family approaches involving whole communities um, are really going to strengthen some of the prevention effects that we can already see. Yeah. Turning back to Holly, do you think there could have been anything to have prevented your first depressive episode as a teenager? What would have helped? Uh, um, I think my back? answer really complements what Elisa has been saying. Like the short version is no, nothing could have prevented mm. it really. But with whole school action, information, knowledge, um, finding the triggers, the warning signs earlier, it would have made it a lot less severe and it would have meant that I wouldn't have missed what was a term of school in year 10. Yeah. Um, so yeah, nothing really could have prevented it. That's just the nature of my depression. Mm -hmm. It was always going to happen, but the severity of it was, I think a little bit unnecessary because I just had no idea and it just built up and built up. Yeah. And then you know, it's like straw that broke the camel's back. Yes, yes. <laughs> complete okay. spiral down. So I yep. think that complements your research or kind of it's the same idea of what you were saying, Elisa. Yeah. And Elisa, can I ask you something? Do you, um, is mental, is youth mental health problems on the rise? This is something I get a lot when I'm treating clients. They do say, you know, a lot of people come in and they say, look, we think that mental health problems are on the rise. What does the data say? Should we be worried, especially in the context of COVID-19 at the moment, in adolescent mental health? Yeah, so look, there are a few parts to that question. I'll just start with the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what does the data say about the rates mm -hmm. of youth mental illness? Mm -hmm. um, quite clearly, data from the last few years has shown increased rates of mental illness. So we have really high quality data from Australia. So the uh, Mission Australia and Black Dog Institute Youth Mental Health Survey of more than 25,000 young people has shown that the rates of psychological distress, which are indicative of probable mental illness, have increased from about 18% in uh, 2012 up to about 24% in uh, 2018 was the most recent one. So that's a kind of a stable increase of just a few percentage points, but that is demonstrating an increase. And there's a similar pattern of results that's re that have recently been published from the US in a large pop nationally uh, representative population sample of more than 600,000 young people aged 12 to 17 showing an increase in rates of depression. So I think the data is pretty clear. What isn't clear, and, and there seems to be some controversy about why, you know, why this might be. Um, certainly, we're getting much better at talking about mental illness. Young people are a lot more comfortable in disclosing mental illness. So it's difficult to say whether the data is reflecting um, a, a, an increased comfort or a lower level of stigma around 
the discussion of, of mental illness and disclosure or whether that is something that what you know is not necessarily um, masking what was there before but is actually showing an increased rate of, of psychological distress in young people um, but I guess what what I think is most important is it's very clear that the rates are definitely not going down despite improvements in innovations in prevention and intervention and treatment and a huge amount of government um, spending in mental health services, the rates are not going down and that's really concerning and they remain quite high and if anything, like I've said, they're increasing. So I think we we do need to be concerned. Um, I think particularly during COVID, um, we've got some new data that we're about to publish that, that shows that about three quarters of young people aged 12 to 18 are reporting a worsening of their mental health. Um, and that's really, you know, concerning. I think adults can all relate. You know, it's been a terrible, terrible year for people's mental health. But I think particularly for young people, this is a time where they spend a lot of time with one another, where they develop their identity through their peer relationships, where connecting with other young people is critically important. And I think that that is a huge contributing factor um, and something that we need to look at really closely and try and find ways that we can mitigate um, and support young people through this really, really tr tricky time. Anthony here has asked, are we generally speaking about anxiety and depression rather than things like bipolar and psychosis? Could you yeah. clarify? Yes, yes. So, so um, especially in the prevention space, we tend to focus on common mental illnesses, which have the highest prevalence rates. Mm. So that's primarily anxiety and depression. Um, it's kind of in later adolescence that we start to see the emerging the emergence of um, more serious mental illness, including psychosis and, and bipolar disorders. Um, and there, there's actually very little evidence around the prevention of those disorders. So we really I do was focus. just about to write also back to Anthony was doing that. Um, my condition is actually a bipolar disorder and I talk about the depression aspects of my, of my bipolar. So that was later diagnosed though. So Anthony, in general, when I talk, it will be related around my mental illness, which is classified as bipolar. But um, in high school, it was classified as melancholic depression. So yeah. Whenever I talk, you can assume that I'm talking a little bit bipolar as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we haven't heard from Lindsay. I might throw Lindsay a question here, right? Um, in, in regards to COVID-19 as well, you know, are, are you concerned? Because, Elisa, I know that you're concerned because they're kind of disconnected with their peer groups at the moment at such an important time. What about you, Lindsay? What are your main concerns around COVID-19 and the restrictions that teens are currently facing at the moment? I think that um, probably COVID is hardest on teenagers, harder than on any other age group, in fact. Um, and that's because developmentally at the stage, what they, what they are driven to do is to connect in order to move from the dependence of childhood to the interdependence and independence of adulthood. And that's what they were unable to do. Um, and so for me, that is my, that I think it's been highly concerning and I, I feel particularly worried about the, the children in the teenagers in, in Melbourne who are still in lockdown and are likely to be there for quite a long time. So I think it's them that we need to, to put a lot of energy and attention uh, towards. Um, loneliness is the most common consequence and Elisa can talk about the survey that she did, which is quite fascinating, um, of, of, kid, of teenagers in, in COVID and their 
primary experience was of loneliness. And certainly I have, I have twin teenagers at home and, and for both of them, one an extrovert, one an introvert, both of them, that was the most overwhelming experience for them was around loneliness um, and trying to help them to find ways to reach out uh, through, through social media, actually, for the one child in particular, that for him keeping contact through TikToks and um, other forms of Instagram and uh, sharing was a critical way for him to keep connection um, during that time of, of isolation here in Sydney. For the other child um, who's an introvert, um, it was gaming online with her friends um, that she knows from school. So for me, technology actually saved us in that period of time um, when they were so isolated uh, through COVID. Yeah. So you've raised a really interesting point, with, which is you know, during COVID, people are really concerned about the amount of screen time that adolescents uh, are getting, right? So, you know, wondering what the research says around screen time. I might turn back to Lisa for this, our research. Researcher. What is the what is the research around screen time? Because we've got parents getting really concerned that they're spending so much time, and is there uh, adverse impact on their mental health? Yeah, look, it's a it's a really important point, and something I get asked a lot. Uh, you know, a lot particularly over the last couple of months. Um, the jury's still out in terms of the data. We're, we're about to uh, publish a, a comprehensive review of the relationship between uh, mental illness and screen time. We find, Frank, that the relationship, there is no relationship between screen time and anxiety and self-esteem in terms of the published literature of longitudinal studies. And what longitudinal studies essentially do is they look at um, a group of young people over two time points and try and make some causal inferences between these two variables. So we found no relationship for anxiety and, and self-esteem and screens. Um, and we did find a small relationship between depression and screen time, but it was a bi-directional relationship. So what that means is we don't know if spending time on screens leads to increased symptoms of depression or whether increased symptoms of depression leads to increased time on screens. And it seems to be a, a bi-directional um, cycle. Um, and I wanna, I wanna highlight that the effect is very small so um, taking that into account, I think that given the current circumstances, um, encouraging young people to connect with their peers online and um, stay engaged socially and find, you know, find creative ways to use the internet and, and technology to, to keep up things with their friends, that can involve like a group, a group Pilates class with some girlfriends or gaming with some mates or do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't necessarily need to be on Instagram um, you know, liking photos. There are so many different ways that you can engage with people online. And I think finding ways of maintaining social connection using um, digital technology is absolutely critical for young people. Of course, it needs to be done safely and privacy um, and so on is, is really important. But I think the way that the, that digital technology is used is really important. And that's something that we haven't been able to tease apart with the research. So we, you know, there's just not enough work separating out you know, who's gaming a lot, who's interacting with others, who, who's using smartphones, who's in front of the TV, that, you know, the, 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 the reason that screens are used and how people use that for interaction, I think is really important um, and will be something to look at in the future in terms of the research, disentangling this, you know, common perception between, you know, screen time and mental ill health. And it, it's really unclear what the screen time guidelines are based on because it's certainly not empirical evidence. 
Yep. I hope that answers your question, Ben. And I think John's also asked some questions about video games as well. And it is really hard to disentangle between social media, screen time and video games as well, right? Yeah. Look, I, I will just say there, there is a literature around uh, gaming addiction. Um, and it's quite clear from that li literature that that is unhelpful. And that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about kind of screens in, in general. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. I so always found after doing chatting, I feel much more positive energy for myself than if I just go on Instagram and look through posts. Generally when I'm feeling really low and I want to feel worse, because that's what happens when you're depressed. Sometimes yeah. you just want to feel it. I'll go on Instagram and just look through it just because I'm like, Oh, well, can't feel any lower. But then if I talk to my friends on Zoom or by text, when I get the energy to, I always find that's really positive. So I, sometimes I think it's the type of screen time you're getting as well as like, you know, just general screen time. I, I think I agree a lot with Holly. And I, I think that's why our, our future proofing uh, app, one of the apps that we we testing out in future proofing called Sparks is really useful for young people because it's a fantasy game, which children, teenagers can obviously relate to, but it's an evidence-based mental health program. So it takes people through a series of steps uh, as an avatar where they, they learn to find hope and look at different ways of doing that. And then they go on to look at um, in the volcano province. They, they deal with intense emotions and it looks at different strategies for dealing with that, which I know for, for my teenagers is the most dominant experience that they have is this overwhelming emotionality. So it helps them to look at how you can deal with that production and then they go onto the mountain province where they have hurdles to overcome. And then they, they look at how they can problem solve around that different steps that, that one can use for problem solving. And, and then onto automatic negative thinking in the swamp province and how you can challenge those ideas. So there are ways that we can use online games in productive ways to help people's mental health. I think um, my own teenagers have played the game and I found it extremely useful. So uh, an anonymous attendee has just asked for the name of the game again. Is it called Sparks? Is that yes. correct? Sparks. Mm. It is now available in Australia, says Wendy. Uh, it's actually not. It's available through the Future Proofing trial. Ah, yes. okay. Yeah. So tell us about Future Proofing, Elisa. This is a good point for us to talk a little bit about the research that's happening with adolescents in your study. Yeah, so so Future Proofing is really exciting. I'd say it's the, our, the Black Dog Institute flagship youth mental health um, project at the moment. And essentially, I'll give you a bit of background to, so that you can understand it uh, to a greater extent. It's basically off the back of a, a, quite a small randomised control trial that we did in 2016, where we looked at this game Sparks and we um, gave it to uh, year 12 students across 10 high schools, um, about 540 students it was, and we asked them to play the game in the lead up to the HSC. And we were interested in whether it's a it's a it's a quite a basic game. There's seven levels. Lindsay did a great job of describing it, so I won't I won't go back through it. It's based on cognitive behavior therapy principles, um, but it's a bit more engaging and, and it was developed by young people with mental health professionals for young people. And I think that's that's something that is sometimes missing in some of the adult interventions. They're not they're not easily 
um, tailored to young people because the way of engaging young people is so different. Um, and basically, to, much to our surprise, we found that um, doing this program for seven weeks, so 20, 20 to 30 minute modules for seven weeks actually reduced young people's um, depression immediately after they finished playing the game. But those games were actually maintained six months later, just as they sat their HSC. So they're the final school exams. It's the equivalent of the VCEs in, in Victoria. Um, and we know that we know that school study and school exams is among one of the most stressful things that young people go through. So we were actually really encouraged by this. It was delivered universally, so to the whole of Year 12, without any um, selection based on who had symptoms or who didn't. It was just everybody got it, and and we found this effect relative to a control group who who didn't receive it. Um, and so really encouraged by this, we wanted to ask the question whether you can actually do this at scale in schools. Mm -hmm. Can we deliver this program to thousands? And thousands of young people across Australia, not just in metropolitan Sydney, but across the state? Can we get to rural and remote communities who often don't have access to nearly as much psychological care and support as you can get in the cities? And can we expand it even beyond New South Wales and across Australia? And so that's the core premise um, of the future proofing study. There are a few things we learned from the original study. It's really hard to work with year 12s. They have almost no time in the curriculum. Um, and it was a real battle for us to, to get kind of schools to sign on and parents to think that it was a good idea that they give up a few hours in their final year to do a mental health program. So when we've now moved to year eight and I think that's consistent as well with some of the evidence suggesting that if you really wanna prevent mental illness, you, you've got to go younger. There's a huge spike at the beginning of adolescence and the, I think the younger we can go the better um, you know I think you know early high school and actually I've started to think the primary school um, just speaking to teachers and you know with the schools I work with I think you know starting in primary school will um, will be something to look at for the future but getting back to future proofing so basically we're looking at whether we can deliver this Sparks app to um, to year eight students across about 200 schools. We're looking at involving about 10,000 young people um, to see whether this is something that we can do. Um, how can we implement it at scale? And there's, there's a few innovations with this study, I guess I'd like to talk about. Um, the first one is, is that we'll be following young people up for five years. That is so uncommon in prevention studies, but really, really important because we don't actually know what the long-term effects of these programs are. Most studies have a 12 month follow up so you can see how young people do, you know, in the year after they've done some kind of intervention. But what that misses out on is, is what happens after that. And if you really want to test prevention, you need to track young people over time and see, you know, see what happens, see how, see how it evolves, see if there are any long term effects. Um, so I guess that's the first thing. The second thing is that we, for young people who are having a hard time, they, they do sparks. And if they're still struggling a year later, those who show high symptoms then get offered a second intervention. So they get offered an intervention um, that focuses on sleep and sleep is a key factor in a lot of mental illness. Um, and, it, it, you know, when you think about it, if you go to the doctor and you have um, a virus or, or I shouldn't say virus in these times, but you have something, um, you know, the doctor might prescribe a medication for you. And if it doesn't, and they say, if you don't feel better, come back and we'll try something else. That's quite, you know, that's common in mental illness when people are prescribed medications, you will often change around medications. But usually when, when somebody receives psychological therapy, if it doesn't work, they're very seldom offered a different kind of therapy or a different approach or a, you know, something a little bit different. And, and, and I think that has to change. 
because I, you know, I, I, I still do clinical practice and I often hear from, from my clients, oh, I, I, I've seen a psychologist, but it didn't work. Mm. You know, psychologists don't work for me. Mm. And I think that they're, you know, just, you know, just like medical doctors, psychologists have a range of different, different, you know, uh, skills and um, interventions that they can offer. And maybe the psychologist is not right for them, but that doesn't mean that you give up on psychological therapy. And so I think having different digital programs that can be offered when one doesn't speak to somebody or it doesn't work is really important. And that's something else that we'll be testing um, in the trial. And we're also looking at a broad range of outcomes. So we're not just focused on mental health. We're looking at physical health health we're looking at young people's overall functioning their well-being um, we're looking at drug and alcohol use um, we're looking at resilience uh, we're looking at their um, academic performance and and how much they use health services as well so we want to get as complete a picture as we can so that we can work out how we can um, best prevent you know mental illness in young people and essentially at the end of the study I want to be able to you know if, if it works I want to be able to offer something to schools that they can embed in their curriculum and uh, deliver to all students um, it's it's not that clear to me why why schools are a great place to vaccinate against physical health diseases but we don't have something similar for mental health there's there's a lot of well-being programs and I commend the schools for the hard you know the hard hard work that they do in the well-being space and um, student support but there, there seems to be a lot of variability and variety um, yeah. in what's available and I think that having an evidence-based program embedded in, in the curriculum is essentially what what I would view as um, the the best outcome from this trial. Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of interest in the Sparks program in our Q&A. So um, let's go through, is it only exclusively in the future proofing study? It cannot be accessible within Black Dog? No. No. So we're, look, we're hoping to license it. We're hoping to make it available. Um, but I, uh, until the, the trial is over, so until it's been rolled out, um, so until the end of next year, um, it's not available in Australia. It was actually developed by academics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Um, and the New Zealand government have made it freely available to young people um, in, in that country. Um, but unfortunately, we haven't found a, a, a way to license it as yet. But that's something that we're working on and looking to. Catherine has asked, are you still accepting schools into the future proofing study? Yes, I'll, I'll throw to Lindsay, who's, who's working on this. Oh, Lindsay, can you tell us about how schools can become involved? Yes, I, I certainly can. We'd love to have more schools. Um, at the moment, we um, are rolling out the program, uh, the Future Proofing Study and Intervention in Sydney. Um, and schools, we've been to 12 this term. Next term, we're going to 60 schools. And then we're going to be looking at, at the moment, we've got 70 schools that we're working at uh, next year in term two so if anyone's interested they can email us um, uh, my, my email is, is, is a good one to use uh, l.brown at futureproofing.co.org.au sorry l.brown at futureproofing.org.au um, and yeah we're looking at having as many people as possible sign in I'll, I'll put my my email address into the to the to the 
the, the chat session. Um, we, we're wanting as many possible as schools as possible to sign up with us. It's it's really what makes this research valuable is that it's being offered as as Lisa said on a on a large scale, longitudinally. Um, and the more young people we hear from, the better. Um, we also really want to hear from schools all over the country so that the voices of all students are represented. Fantastic. I hope that answers your question, uh, Julie and Emma as well, who also wanted to know how to become part um, of the trials. Now, Kath has asked here, and maybe this is one for Lindsay, is there resistance from education departments for these type of programs? Actually, this um, the Department of Education in um, this province, New South Wales, has given us um, ethical approval to to run the study, and they're very supportive of it. Um, this is largely where we're doing our work in um, uh, our province, New South Wales. So we have ethical approval from them, and we also have it from um, the university that we're attached to, the University of New South Wales. So, in fact, they're very supportive. They are looking to the future to see how they can um, positively impact on, on preventing mental health for problems with young people. Now, can participating in future proofing study help a teenager recover from the effects, the isolating experience of COVID-19? So what, what do you think? Is it, because Lindsay, this is one of your questions. Can, we, can they participate in future proofing um, as part of the process of recovering from the isolation experience of COVID-19? Well, if we think about the loneliness that's generated through a process like COVID, what young people need at that at particular stage is to be able to identify how it is they're feeling. So they, they're feeling sad and bad, but it's not clear to them often what that is. Young people struggle to name and ex the experiences they're having, the emotional content of it. So what we're doing uh, with Future Proofing, through even through the survey, the extensive survey, where we ask them about feelings and emotions is to, to help them to name those. But also through the apps, what we do is teach them the intensity of emotions and how to name those, um, how to deal with them and process them. That's a large part of the, of the program. And loneliness is a critical one. As Elisa said, it's a cognitive behavioral theory uh, therapy approach. So we look at what the particular thoughts are that young people are having and their feelings. So I'm feeling um, I'm feeling sad and my thoughts are nobody wants to be with me. No one wants to be my friend. And so I'm withdrawing. And so we try to, in, uh, with the, the app, what it does is look at interrogating or investigating those thoughts and checking them out with new perspectives, et cetera, a whole range of things that allow them to to shift their thinking and therefore their feelings and actions to to be able to reach out to each other and and move through those periods and to work with their parents and teachers on that those experiences as well. Fantastic. Now, I've got a few questions here. Do the schools need to be in New South Wales and do you look at rural and remote schools? Yeah, um, we do work extensively with rural and remote schools as well. Um, so we are working in New South Wales in the government schools because that's where we have our ethical approval. We are also working in some of the independent schools across the borders um, because they don't require ethical approval. And that takes at least a year to get um, from the educational Can authorities. Can I just say... We yes, do have Lisa. ethical approval. We just don't have ethical approval from the state departments, which is why we work in independent schools. So obviously, 
we have ethical yes. approval for all of the work that we do. I just want to point that sorry, out. Sorry, yes, yes, sorry, Lisa. Yes, <laughs> so fine. I mean, it's just that the education departments in other regions are, uh, would take a, at least a year to uh, to apply for those approvals. Is there a minimum number of students to have to participate for a school to be part of this future proofing trial? Well, we do prefer to work with um, at least 20 students in a school, um, in a cohort. So in a year eight cohort, there would be 20. Our experience is that about 50% of the parents sign consent to participate into the program. So um, yeah, we do need to have uh, uh, quite a large number. We do support schools extensively to get the consent, but we do need consent from parents because it is a mental health program that parents need to consent into the program. Lindsay and Elisa, I'm going to point you to the Q&A box now because I know that there's a lot of questions and we may not be able to get through it because we could spend the whole night just going through the details of future proofing tonight. But if you could um, uh, potentially type some of the answers in, that would be fantastic. Now, for the schools who can't quite get to the future proofing studies, what can schools do now at an organizational or structural level in order to prevent the development of mental health struggles amongst teens and to prevent escalation of mild mood disorders into something more clinical. I might give this one to you again, Lindsay, and then maybe turn to Holly. What can um, schools do now? Well, I worked as a teacher in a school here in the in the northern beaches of Sydney in a senior high school for a long time. Um, and there were a lot of people committed to the schools uh, taking responsibility for the mental health of young people, which is so essential because obviously students can't um, academically um, uh, progress well if they're not feeling mentally strong and well. So teachers and educators need to work with this. So schools need to work at an organizational level. So there needs to be a culture around um, pro-mental health um, focus in the schools um, and that involves often the leaders of the school taking responsibility. I know for example in our staff room if there was a child who was clearly um, struggling with their mental health there was always a sense that 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 we needed to support that child rather than actually fix them or deal with them. So there, there needs to be that kind of pro-emotional pro, um, approach to, to young people at an organizational and cultural level. Um, and then, of course, there's a pedagogical level where, as Elisa was saying, we need to integrate uh, well-being training and, and learning into the curriculum at a social and emotional level for young people at <laughs> Yeah. I just got you pedagogical for those who aren't teacher know how is how we teach and yes. why we teach. Thanks, Holly. <laughs> yes. So the, the essentially the content of what we're teaching and how we're teaching it needs to integrate um, social and emotional learning uh, fundamentally, just as Elisa was saying, as as physical health is prioritized. And then of course at a relational level, teachers need um, and maybe Holly can speak about this because she's more recently qualified as a teacher to talk about the the ways teachers can use relationships positively to build the mental health of students it's not something that when I was trained as a teacher that was any part of our learning um, and I had to go and become a psychologist first before going back into schools as a teacher to learn how to do that work with young people Yep, absolutely. I recently taught in an educational studies department at a university and it's still not part of the mm. part of the program. Is that correct, Holly? 
Yep. And it's something I've been up in arms about for a while with my university. Um, but everything Lindsay said from a school's perspective is right. Basically, it needs to be an organizational structure of the school and a foundation of the school. And what I found personally is schools are still grappling with it. Well, these are my experiences in primary school where there's no sort of one style that everyone goes to everyone's sort of trying out new things next year trying out something else trying to make find something that fits so it's still pretty messy I think from a school point and like the work that you guys are doing is trying to tighten that up definitely trying to get more evidence-based practices involved in that um but also just as we know about mental illness in gen like generally it can hide you might see a child who seems perfectly fine and they're suffering inside. So as teachers, we've got to really create, we won't, we, a lot of people don't want to be seen as that. So as a teacher, you've got to make sure you're a person that they can come to and just reiterate that and try and make it, you can be someone they can confide in and something like that. Cause I was really thinking about it and you can't like some kids just don't, want you to know so you've got to make sure as a school and as a teacher there is someone that they can come to and that they know they're there to support them if they do get the courage and the bravery to actually go up and do it like which is extraordinarily hard um but yeah so from a school level it's just going to create this culture in the school with the students and with the staff because mm -hmm. if the staff can't feel like they can take a mental health day off they can't really practice what they preach almost, you know. Um, so they, it needs to be a school-wide initiative. Yeah. And teachers in schools are always um, clearly identified as the ones that students do or don't go to. And I think that's problematic because it should be that all teachers are students. Uh, that's, you know, that students want to go to all the teachers. In our staff room, there were 40 or 50 of us. And it would always be the same teachers that were called out to go and talk to the students. Uh, and those kinds of skills that those people had that were almost innate in a sense need to be prioritized as part of the learning that's, that the teachers have in at university. They need to learn about the social and emotional development, the developmental needs of young people, how to activate that, how to identify mental problems on the continuum to see the initial signs, how to help people um, when things get bad, how to prevent mental health problems, what are all the things you can do. There's so much that they could learn that I assumed would now be part of the school curriculum, but is uh, the teaching curriculum for teachers, but isn't. Um, no. And um, so my big issue with it was we had one week, one week of learning about mental illness in a whole four years mm. of teaching. And that one week is one lecture and one two-hour tutorial. That's it. And yep. so, you know, with me being me, um, I tried to really fight this and do it. But essentially teachers coming out of unis, or at least my uni, which is quite a well-known prestigious uni, um, are coming out completely uneducated about mental health issues or, you know, just general well-being issues. So it's, it really at the moment needs to come from the schools because it's not coming by the universities. 
And Holly, are there much um, professional development opportunities to learn about mental health or is it pretty scarce at the moment for teachers? Yeah. It's becoming more prevalent. Like in my school, um, we're integrating a new program called Grow Your Mind because it's a primary school. It's going to be slightly different. Um, it's going to be accessible to younger children. So we did have a professional learning development on the Grow Your Mind initiative, but general mental health, like a mental health learning day or professional learning, it doesn't really happen, I think. Um, but then also a part of being a teacher, you have to yearly do a safety check. So like an e-safety course and that covers mental health illness as well. But yeah, it's, we, it's not like we get for CPR training, we get a whole kind of four hours on learning how to do CPR. We don't really get that for mental health, mm. you know, as someone who's done a mental health first aid course, like emergency response, actually, that's kind of important. You know, yeah, so I think that <laughs> I think it's covered some of the questions we get, get here. Uh, I've got down here, which is what changes could be made to the training of educators that could impact positively in young people's mental health um, at schools? And it sounds like having some sort of basic training at a pre service le level would have made a difference for you, Holly. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, for example, in my uni, um, the third year of my degree, I got another depressive episode. Um, and most of my friends, this was their first experience of hearing about depression at uni. And so I luckily by this stage of my life, uh, that was my third time having the depressive episode. So I could very clearly kind of explain what was happening rather than if I was in high school and just going all over the shop. Um, but that really drew my attention to how little these teachers know, these pre-service teachers know, unless they've had their own personal experience with it. Um, and, yeah, so I found I was sort of educating them to an extent about mental health and the uni wasn't. Yep. I think it's also important for us to think about um, how parents manage in those situations because as a teacher and a psychologist and a parent, I can say that when my kids got to their adolescence, I really had no idea how to parent them through that. Um, and it sounds, you know, as though one ought to know, um, but actually it's been, I've needed to work with parenting experts to help me through a whole range of issues with both of my teenagers. I think we assume that parents should know what to do because they were parented, but many of us had parents who weren't taught to parent either. Um, and there actually are particular things that one can learn. I've, I've learned over this year in particular where um, we can help our kids. We can learn to identify when things are tough because they don't actually explain to us. They don't tell us when things are going badly we, we we can see things are not great but we don't really know what's going on in the internal world of teenagers they have their own private and secret world um, much of the time and we need to learn to identify the symptoms to work with them to find ways to support them uh, and we actually could be taught a lot of those things and I, I've thought often about how that could happen uh, I think schools are a good place for it to start um, when I work for relationships Australia we we used to run programs at school in the evenings um, 
and parents would come along and we would talk about parenting skills. And, and those parents, I think, found it very helpful. But um, I'm not sure that there were many. Well, there weren't many of them that came along. And we need to find ways, I think, to uh, allow parents to realize that this is this is a skill. It's not something that we automatically instinctively know how to do. And you really realize that when you have teenagers. So who, where and how can parents turn to for support if their teens are struggling with a mental health challenge? Eliza. Yeah, Who so, can parents turn to? Yeah, look, I mean, there are. It's it's really tricky because the same thing is not going to work for everybody. Um, I guess as a as a mental health professional, I can direct people towards some online resources um, where there is information for parents and carers about how you might want to start supporting your young person. Um, I think before you even get to that, though, I think you know, listening and attending is really important, and it sounds obvious. Um, but often, you know, things are very busy um, in homes and households with siblings and work and all sorts of things. And I think just slowing down and just taking note of what your, mm. your young person might be experiencing and giving them an opportunity to share it with you. They may not and they may wish not to talk about it and that's fine. But I think given you know, given the right circumstances, um, often I have a lot of people say that the best conversations they have are in the car or when they're walking, mm. when you're not making eye contact and you're not in an intense situation with your child, but rather it kind of evolves more organically. So so I guess before you get to the, all of the support resources, I'd say just to take take the time and ensure that there's an opportunity for your young person to tell you what's going on if they want to. Yep, um, absolutely. You know, and that real kind of active listening um, mm. and just not to, not necessarily talking or saying a lot, but just really trying to understand and engage with them. Yeah. Um, and then there are a whole range of resources online. So um, there's some really good parent resources from Reach Out. Um, Headspace also have a carers uh, a portal and part of their website mm. that that um, parents can go to and they can actually call up and get and get. Um, support from a mental health professional. Um, Origin, the youth mental health um, organisation in Melbourne, attached to Melbourne Uni, also has um, some stuff on their website for parents and they can also be connected to a clinician. Um, there, I guess, you know, there's a whole lot of online parenting programs which are quite popular, like Triple P. Um, I guess it's more around um, finding, you know, tailoring what you need based on what your young person is experiencing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes getting that one-on-one -on -one support is really important. So a good place to start is by having a discussion with your GP if you're concerned. Um, and there are a lot of there are a lot of psychologists and mental health professionals who specialise in supporting parents to support their kids. Um, so even if you have a teenager who, um, you know, you, you may be able to get them kicking or screaming into therapy. I've certainly seen my fair share of young people who don't want to be there. Um, Me too. But, <laughs> Been there. It, yes. Um, but it can also work to just work with the parents and find out what's going on at home. And you know, you're, you're you know working with the parents essentially to upskill them in how they can mm. support their child can be really powerful as well. Absolutely. And and a gentle reminder also to the parents who are struggling that you also need to take care of your own mental health as well in the process. Lindsay, do you have anything to add to that in terms yeah. of extra resources or tips for parents? 
suppose what I've learned this year when things started to go a bit pear-shaped over the COVID time was to, to recognize that I actually needed to put a lot of energy into the children, uh, my teenagers, in a way that I, I thought I was over from the early intense years of parenting um, toddlers. I have twins, so I thought that time was you know intense. But this I've learned now just to tune into them, to be present for them, to play with them, to engage with them, to, to find what their interests are and and engage with those to take them seriously and listen to them and I've learned an enormous amount in that process respecting them um, seeing that they're actually amazing young people coming into their own own way of of seeing the world and and thinking um, so it's an intense period and it's very active. I think parents need to recognize that we have to de-stress, as you were saying. We have to have less on in our lives so that we are available to them. It's a particular short period of time in our lives where we actually can influence and engage with them. They're very experiential young people. They want to experience things. So I've spent a lot of time, for example, teaching my son to drive. And in that process, as Adiza was saying, you're in the car, you're next to them. There's a lot of conversation that happens and I'm there and I'm listening and engaging and I, I think we have to put the effort in and the energy in and that's a large part of it and not interrogate them learn that what I've really learned this year is that it's about connection and not control you cannot control young people you have to learn to use a to build your relationship up so that it really allows you to engage with them through that well, so could I add to that? Yeah, I was just um, going to ask you, you know, you've been through this experience yourself. What, what would help a young person really connect and seek mental health support? Please go to your teachers as well. Mm. They really care. And mm. although, you know, I might have run us through the mud a little bit with, um, you know, saying the lack of training we get, we do get training. We have experience with other children. We can see how they compare. And also we have access. Every school has access to a school counsellor. And so what happens with us is we can also find resources and advice and, and lots of different things that, you know, instead of you going outside and looking for it yourself, you know, we can, we can help you in the local community as well. And also without your teachers help like your child needs to feel comfortable at school because essentially that's where they spend the majority of their time mm -hmm. when I got depressed I stopped going to school high school is really confusing and there are so many teachers um primary school is a lot easier because there's one teacher but going to the year advisor or the teacher and informing everyone what's happening it just builds the understanding it will mean they're not getting that homework that's stressing them out and pushing them over the edge you know um there are a lot of accommodations available and including hsc students as well which was done for me as well um in hsc so there are there are things available that you might not realize that teachers can utilize to make going back to school or coming to school a little bit easier for your child because if they don't enjoy going to school well that's the majority of their life right now you know there's Absolutely. no and that's something teachers or the year advisors or the school in general mm. can help you with and your mm. child with 
I think the other thing we need to recognize is that it does take a village to raise a child. And if you reach out to other people as a parent who can support you in your journey, whether that's the school as people that Holly was mentioning, or even other people in your extended friends and family circle, your your teenager in particular needs other influences as they start to move out uh, of the family unit and to individuate and separate and move into the world. And so you can actually, I think, find useful and important and valuable people for them to engage with that, that can help them in that transition. My daughter, for example, loves a friend of mine who's an engineer, and she spends so much time talking to him about the, you know, the kinds of things that matter to her. And I can see that the purpose that she gets in that discussion gives her energy and hope. I can see with my son, for example, when he engages with an older cousin, that there's fun and, and, and frivolity and lightness in that engagement uh, when they go rock climbing, for example, that's that's really powerful for him. So I, I think we need to to be open to asking people to help us in this journey as parents and to helping other people who need it. I've done similar things for my friends with their kids. Um, there are a lot of people who will help. Yeah, one more thing, um, not being a parent, but being the person with mental illness, a lot of the time, like my friends or family, they find it difficult to share my story because it's mine. And as a result, they don't share it with anyone either and it can internalize them. So, you know, as being a carer, essentially, like, which was my mum was my carer, you've got to also worry about, you've got to take care of your mental health. And that means sharing how you're feeling as well, because it's not only happening to your child, it's happening to you and the whole family as well has an effect on everybody. So I think from my experience with my parents, they want to give everything and make you do all you can to make you happy or something like that. But in the process, they're shielding off this huge life because they feel like that they can't share it with anyone else because it's their issue. And I think it's really important to find as a carer trusted people that you can talk to about it because it's happening to you too. And if you break down, then, you know, it's just a cycle. It's such an important point, Holly. I'm so glad that you raised it because I think something that we're seeing specifically around COVID is that, um, everyone's mental health is deteriorating and the effects seem to be worse for women, for carers and for parents of children, of younger children. And I think that's really important because, um, you know, it's almost like that, that, um, that thing they tell you on airplanes, like you've got to have your own mask on first before you can, you know, do that for anybody else. But, you know, like, I think, you know, a huge shout out to parents and teachers and carers who are not only going through all of this for themselves, but also dedicating so much of their energy and time to looking after somebody else. And so I think, you know, engaging, you know, I don't really like, or I don't know, it's open for debate, but people talk a lot about self-care in the popular media. Um, I prefer to say do things that make you feel good and keep you well um, is really, really important because um, without that, you're not going to be that that as useful as you could be to, to the people around you. So as we head towards the end of this hour, I want to do a quick whip around in terms of one tip that you can give to our teachers and our parents, maybe even the young adolescent that might be listening in to this podcast. What's one tip uh, for adolescent well-being? We might start with you, Elisa. 
I'm actually going to say we haven't really spoken about it tonight, but the role of sleep is critically important. Um, it's it's really related to mental health. It doesn't mean that being a poor sleeper equates to a mental health problem or anything like that. But getting enough sleep just makes everything, um, you know, much more easy. Uh, sorry, I haven't put that well. You know, getting a good night's sleep makes the world much more manageable and really mm-hmm. um, enables people to cope. And I remember this. I I, I had a, a, an infant who didn't sleep very much and it just made such a difference to my life and I see that with the young people that I work with you know mm-hmm. uh, getting in, in inadequate sleep or poor quality sleep is a huge factor so um, scheduling a regular wake, uh, wake sleep cycle if that's possible getting up around the same time each day having some kind of sense of routine um, that lends itself to sleep getting off your your devices an hour before bed um, these are all really important things and I think just you know if you're going to do one thing for your mental health make sure you get enough sleep because it's going to enable you to cope with everything else minimum much better way. That is a great tip, Elisa. What about you, Lindsay? What's one tip for adolescent mental health? I'm not, mm, I wouldn't have chosen this one before, but this year what I would say is, is find uh, ways to look to, to feel hope in the world. Um, and of course, and I think in the COVID context, that's where we feel so hopeless and helpless. It's so important to look for any opportunities for hope. So for example, with my son to find hope, I have to play with him. I have to engage with the things that he loves to do that are funny and silly. Um, with my daughter, we need to talk about the things that interest her language development and so on. Anything that gives you hope and meaning and purpose, look for the beauty in the world. Find Find the things that that seem good and right. Identify the people who are making a difference um, to keep up your hope and optimism. Uh, I think it's critical. Lindsay, that's a beautiful tip. Holly. Mine is sort of an extension on Lindsay. When I was thinking about this question earlier, um, I was thinking, oh, you know, you've got to do exercise, you've got to eat right, you've got to do all these things. But realistically, when you're feeling really lousy about yourself, those things are going to go out the window. So, And when I've been most depressed to when I've been really happy, um, I've always every night written three things that I have enjoyed or liked that day. And when I'm really depressed, it's like a peanut butter sandwich that made me happy that day. And when a natural good thing happens, awesome. But just ending your day on some three things. And Mm -hmm. there's only been a handful of times where I haven't been able to write anything. But I still do that now, even though I'm better. It's just a good way to clear your mind. Fantastic. So, and my last tip, I would give one tip, which is, you know, schools, if you're listening in, please enroll in the future proofing study. So here we go. Now, I've got um, a few things before we finish up today. Please do use our resources at the Black Dog Institute. Um, We've got quite a number of education courses coming up. And if you want to find our previous podcasts, if you know of anyone who's missed out on tonight's podcast, please do check out um, our podcast website. Um, There are also online tools as well. We've got the 10, the Essential Network, as well as My Compass. Um, a really great app um, that can be used um, to support you through this period, COVID-19, but it actually existed before COVID-19 as an online tool. Um, And we also have the Black Dog Institute online clinic. Somebody asked about whether Black Dog has a preferred list of psychologists. We actually have our own clinic um, at the Black Dog Institute. So do check us out. Um, Thank you, everyone. Now, before we end, I just want to remind you that our next podcast is on the 30th of September. It's going to be 
on therapeutic frameworks explained. Um, we're going to have a look at the different psychological frameworks that are available at the moment and talk about the differences and similarities between CBT, ACT, schema, CBT. Um, and we've got a great lineup for you. Thank you for joining us tonight. And I want to thank my amazing panel members um, for some of the, um, the great tips that you gave um, covering also the future proofing study and hopefully um, for the high school and teachers listening in tonight in New South Wales, please do contact Lindsay. Um, she gave you her email can earlier. Can I just repeat tonight. the email, Carol? Sorry. Yes, you can. L. Go for it. blackdog.org.au. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.